HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte, in the studio today. By the way, I just want to say very quickly, thank you to everyone for making a really, really difficult weekend uh, a lot easier. It was the Googa and the Manhattan Cocktail Classic this weekend, and I think it went pretty well. Uh, that being said, I have one of my favorite cocktail and spirits writers in the studio today, Robert Simonson. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I know that we were talking a little bit before the show about uh, uh, years past uh, with the Manhattan Cocktail Classic and the Tales of the Cocktail and, and all these things. It's it's kind of uh, it can get kind of overwhelming and in such a good way because uh, you know before this we were just a bunch of a bunch of enthusiasts hanging around reading old cocktail books having cocktail parties and now it's like it's grown to a point where we can actually. Uh, get together in, in different places in different cities and enjoy the camaraderie and the, the 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 art and craft of classic cocktails and spirits. Yeah, now we can go to like big hotels and big bars and gigantic conventions and talk about old cocktail books and and old cocktails and things like that and do it together in one place. Absolutely, <laughs> and what the greatest part about that, to me at least, is that uh, going from the cocktail parties at my house. Uh, to going to a hotel or, or a venue is that I don't have to clean up afterwards. <laughs> yeah, actually, the way I got uh, introduced to this whole world, the cocktail world, was back in 2006 when I went to Tales of the Cocktail. That was the first year that I went. I met uh, Ann Tunneman, who runs it, up here in New York. For some strange reason, um, she was helping open an Ely uh, Espresso pop-up cafe in Soho. 
I guess she was had some fill-in work there. And she said, I, I run this little cocktail thing down in New Orleans. Maybe you want to go down. And um, at that point, I didn't know much about cocktails at all. And I said, yes. I went down there, and the moment um, I walked into the lobby of the Hotel Monteleone, I, I knew I'd gone down a rabbit hole of, of, of sorts, and I've never quite been back. Absolutely. You know, it's really funny, too. It's it, it, Once you... Uh I guess it's like any other hobby or, or maybe habit in our world. Um, so once, <laughs> once you get into it, it's like it's really it's very difficult to get out of it. Um, and it, 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 it's amazing to me. You were before you were writing about cocktails and spirits. You were uh, writing about theater. Yes, yes, I wrote for theater for about fifteen years um, for various publications for the New York Times uh, and obscure uh, theater publications that you've never heard of. And uh, worked at uh, Playbill and their website for a long time. And I enjoyed that. Uh, I got a little burnt out after a while. I ended up talking to the same people over and over again about the same subjects. Uh, like the cocktail world, uh, the theater world is a, a small universe, mm -hmm. only um, not necessarily populated by uh, people who are uh, enjoying themselves as much. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I felt it was time to move on to something else, and I'd always liked a wine, and so I started educating myself. I took uh, courses down at the International Wine Center, which is based in London, but they have a center here in New York. And so actually, uh, my entry into the uh, liquor journalism world was first wine, um, and I wrote a wine column at the New York Sun for a while, and uh, then I went down to Tales, and I had a revelation that uh, spirits and cocktail people are very different from wine people. And yeah. <laughs> I, I decided I liked the spirits and cocktail people more. It's like jazz versus rock and roll. There's their connections, but it, it's a little. <laughs> they are they are two definitely definitely uh, very separate worlds. Yeah. So when you were when you were writing about wine and when you were a wine enthusiast, as it were, um, were there any connections with like vermouth or sherry? Um, not while I was doing. I was writing mainly about still wine. And uh, hanging out with wine writers, uh, there was some talk of port and sherry, uh, but not a lot. I mean, uh, sherry had not been rediscovered as it has been in the past couple years. Um, same with vermouth. Uh, wow. Same with vermouth, yes. And um, and there was real dividing line. Uh, the, the, the wine people didn't talk about cocktails. They didn't drink cocktails. Um, whereas I found in the cocktail world, uh, there is enthusiasm for wine. Maybe not as much as it is for cocktails, but uh, most of the bartenders, mixologists I like, they get enthusiastic about wine. They have their favorite wines. They like to drink it. Um, but uh, I didn't find that uh, in the wine world. Another thing I found frustrating in the wine world is I found it very difficult to write about wine in an interesting way. Mm. I found that there was a very limited vocabulary, a certain number of words you can use, and it was hard to break out of that. Um, I haven't had that problem with cocktail and spirits. Somehow cocktails and spirits tell more of a story. There's more history. There's more drama. Absolutely. And uh, you can really spin a yarn. You can, you can captivate the reader's attention very quickly. Absolutely. You know, like, I, I, I kind of found that problem. I think when I first met you, I was working at Linnell's down in Red Hook. And, um, That's right. And uh, what we would do, um, we, Linnell's was known a lot for its spirits and, and different, like, bitters and liqueurs and everything, and, and mostly bourbon and American whiskey. But we did a lot of wine sales. And we had really obscure wines too. Um, yeah, good wine, good wine selection. Yeah, and like uh, uh, Amanda Womack from Cask, uh, Ian Wolf, um, all people have been actually on the show. Uh, old coworkers of mine there. We would find ourselves uh, running out of 
uh, verbiage and descriptors for wine. So we would start going kind of start thinking outside of the box. We would we would we come up with a descriptor of the day. And it would be really, it would always be really weird. And we would kind of see if we could actually, like, nail it with this description. So sometimes it would be like, yeah, this, uh, like, an old, like, uh, Barolo. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's haunted. It, it's like, you, you know, it's kind of, are you getting that? Are you, are you picking, it's like, it has ghostly notes. Yeah, but you <laughs> see, the thing is, uh, stores like yours and like Smith & Vine, which is in the same neighborhood mm-hmm. with a, where we, you and I live in Carroll Gardens, um, they can do that with the descriptors. Um, I found that wine publications, you know, kind of it's discourage that kind of thing. You know, right. it's just like you can, it's fruity, it's jammy, you know, high right. tannins, blah blah blah. You know, you, you pull the same words out of the same old hat. Right. Um, and there was like this stiffness um, in the um, in the editorial leadership of the publications, and yeah. it got very frustrating. It's it, and you know, like what you were saying before, to touch back on the the, uh, uh, the history of a spirit or a cocktail with wine, it. And, and I'm not. I'm definitely not talking down wine because uh, I I freaking love wine. No, but, I I, but, uh, I love wine too. But uh, yeah, the stories like as far as like producers go and and great varietals go, like there's history behind it. But yeah, you're right. It's there's it's a it's a much richer history and. More. Yeah, certainly there's a history behind every uh, uh, Bordeaux Chateau, you know, and yeah. and often it's a great history. Um, but there's just something about cocktails because. As you and I know, um, often these histories are shrouded in in myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it's unknown. A lot of it is just bullshit. It's been told in bars, yeah, you know, <laughs> decade after decade. And you have to get to the bottom of it. And at the end, you probably know that some of what you're telling still isn't the truth. Um, but that's kind of cool. You know, it lends yeah. a romance to it. It lends a kind of a, a fog of romanticism. I always find as a bartender, too, um, things like chartreuse and things like absinthe that have like such insane histories benedictine uh for Bronco, things like that um even just like your like angostura bitters you know all of those things i just name dropped all those liqueurs and spirits that i just name dropped those all are some of the most difficult spirits or ingredients to turn people onto. but once you're behind the bar or like on premise wherever you are you start talking about the history of it People are immediately intrigued by it, and they want to try it. Mm-hmm. If you're like, oh, it's this weird bitter thing or this weird herbal thing, you know, that's been around for a long time and whatever. Yeah, and often it, the formula is a secret. Exactly. And that always and gets no people. And no one knows the... Yeah. And nobody knows the secret. You know, two monks who live on a, a hilltop in Tibet, they have, they have this, the recipe. And that, that, that just can't happen with wine, uh, mainly because of the laws countries have. You know, like uh, just pulling something out of my hat i don't know what country this would apply to but like in order to call your wine merlot it has to have 85 percent merlot grapes in there um there's no mystery we know what it is right. we know what your product is <laughs> yeah exactly and like i'm like you know what i'll drink merlot all day but it's like yeah i i would i would i would be more intrigued by the that glass of uh, chartreuse vep and mm-hmm. just knowing that i'm drinking like a, a glass of strange history you know. Yeah, and that's why whenever I come across a wine writer who writes with real engagement, who really gets me intrigued, I, I know that's a talented person. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely that's definitely true. Um, you know, and then like even with those uh, with the history of the spirit, then you've got the history of the the mixture of those spirits together, and mm-hmm. you know I, I love it when I, when I meet 
people from Italy or France, and like we we talk about like vermouth or any kind of liqueur, and like the way that we mix them together because we can't leave anything alone as Americans, you know. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> especially when I met the count, uh, Count Braga, like it's like what the hell is everyone doing with our product? It's like you're you're mixing it with what? You're doing what with it? <laughs> I'm so intrigued by it. And it was something that was never, you know, because the mixture itself was the the maceration, the infusion, and then the distillate, and then the aging. That that was the whole process. And mm-hmm. to us, we took something that was already mixed and created and, and really finessed, and then we started finessing it even more with other ingredients. So it's, it's kind of... It's well, kind that's of, always the American genius. Take something that's already out there and then do something further that's great with it. We didn't create the initial thing, but then we improve it somehow, and that's what we did with cocktails. Exactly. We made it faster, and we put flames. We painted flames on it. And made it individual. It's all for you. It's not a bowl of punch. It's yeah. your cocktail. That's Absolutely. only for you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, yeah, going back to it, that I, I, I share the same sentiment. What got me interested in cocktails was the, exactly the same thing as you. Like, there's mm-hmm. the story the history and i love history and i love ritual that's another reason why i like it so much there are rituals that are connected to wine to any kind of drinking to beer whatever but there are so many piled on top of each other you know i mean uh you just take a drink like the old-fashioned i mean and if you make the old-fashioned in the old-fashioned way you get the sugar cube and then you have to soak it with the angostura bitters and then you have to muddle it i mean you could do simple syrup and many people do and that's just fine but the ritual of muddling the cube is so historic and goes along with that drink going back 100, 130 years. And that kind of thing is great. You know, the same with drinks like uh, the Sazerac or for, you know, the theatrical people out there, things like the Blue Blazer for who, people who do that. I love to, I love making Blue Blazers so so much. <laughs> yeah, Blue Blazers, uh, for those who don't know, uh, throwing the liquor back and forth between, um, are they silver or pewter tankards? Um, they originally were silver. Mm-hmm. I use brass, silver-lined brass mugs. And the liquor's on fire. That's and important to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you forgot that part. Yes. Um, I think, uh, to me, especially with the ritual, um, and we definitely don't have to get into this, but I think you mentioned muddling the sugar cube. I think that there's also a certain, especially like like the culinary side of it, like having the proper tools to make the drinks. And the proper like dishes, the proper glassware. I think that's another big thing too. Like, that, mm-hmm. but that all falls into the ritual, I, I suppose. Yes, it does. I mean, the glassware has changed over the years. I was talking to someone about this about glassware. Um, in the early part of the nineteenth century, apparently the glassware wasn't that much different from other glass. You know, put it in a kind of a wine glass, but uh, a much the, smaller wine. The glass. ritual was yeah. such that certain drinks developed their own glass. The old fashioned has its own glass. The Collins has its own glass. The Martini has its own glass. And you know, there's no real good reason. I mean, there is to a certain extent, but you know, you could serve it in other glasses. But that's not how it was done. This is how it's done. You put the old fashioned in the old fashioned glass. You know, and I love that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just beautiful. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break, Robert. And when we get back, we'll continue speaking about uh, just our, our favorite subject about <laughs> the history of cocktails and writing about them and bringing them to the world. Back in just a moment.
You're listening to Dirty Hands by Eula on the Speakeasy. This is HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we are back. You're listening to the Speakeasy. Jack, who was that? That's a band called Eula. Yeah. They were pretty rad. Pretty good. <laughs> okay, we've been speaking with Robert Simonson. Hey, Damon, who's the band that plays the theme song to your show? That's my band, Brothers. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> a little nepotism there. Oh, nice, 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 strange, awkward plug. I wasn't ready for that, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the gotcha, gotcha. tiger thing going? Um, so, uh, we've been speaking with Robert Simonson, my, I will say, definitely one of my favorite, um, cocktail and spirits writers. Um, not just because you've ripped me up a bunch of times, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I always enjoy, uh, enjoy our conversations and, uh, really respect your opinions on, on cocktails and spirits. And on that note, I really, um, from one person who interviews, people about drinks to another one i would i would like to know your process and like what you find like how how you find stories and what you find interesting and how you develop these into the articles that you write uh finding the stories is just basically talking to a lot of people like you um talking to bartenders mixologists bar owners um just like any uh, reporter's job you have to be out there in the field you know, with your, your feet on the ground, which basically means going to a lot of bars. I mean, that's how we I have, find we the We have trend. the best research <laughs> policy ever. There's no way that you can do this job if you're at home uh, reading books or talking to people on the phone or um, I, I don't know how you would do it. You have to go out and you have to drink and uh, get into great conversations with bartenders or fellow drinkers or, uh, you know, perusing menus, seeing what's going on. And it doesn't take long, you know. I mean, I don't think... A week or two goes by that I don't notice incrementally something that's going on in the bar world. As far as like a, a drinks trend? 
Yeah, yeah, and I hate to use that word because I, I hate I, it too. I know that that's how a lot of people think about what I do and what other journalists do. That we just find two or three things in common, and then we call it a trend, and maybe it's not a trend, you know. And as we put a label on it, unfortunately, that's how a lot of journalism works. And editors do look for trend stories, sure. and I, I, I try to make sure that these are actual things before I write about them. Um, and if that means I'm a little late to the story, if other people have already written it and said, trend, 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 you know, I, I, I'll hang back a little longer saying, well, let's see, see if, if it, it actually is, is totally. a trend just because there's one place in Williamsburg that's doing it and one place in East Village. Um, let's not say that's a story, you know, let's just wait a little while. Right. I mean, like, as far as, I mean, it, it, it's it, this this era that we're in with cocktails is it's it's very quickly moving um, mm-hmm. in, in in so many directions, and we have more access to any like all these ingredients that than we've ever had before. And when you start looking at cocktail trends, if you want to call it that, historically, I mean, you look at the the eighteen seventies to the eighteen eighties, and a lot of stuff changed. But that was two different decades. You know, like the introduction of absinthe into cocktails, the switch over from like rye or from cognac to rye because of phylloxera, you know, and like then you then you start looking at, you know, the the 30s, 40s with like tiki drinks, you know, starting to be introduced, you know, like you can't really can't really like put a decade on it now. It's it's no, like no, said, it's just it's like, like every week six by week, you know? Yeah, it's every six months. Every, every, everything turns over. And it's something that I worry about a little bit because um, once something starts happening, it happens very quickly because everyone in this industry, industry is talking to each other. They're on the phone, they're on email, they're on Facebook, on Twitter. So if somebody in Portland is doing something interesting... Someone in Brooklyn finds out about it the next day and maybe starts doing it the day after or that. Or even that night. Really. And then some reporter like me comes around and writes about it. And I worry about burning out good trends before they deserve to die. Because, you know, the trend will, at this point, trends like, whatever, uh, barrel aging, for example, it'll, it'll burn white hot for a year. And then suddenly you'll start getting the articles, oh, that's over. And if it's a good idea, it shouldn't be over. I mean, just because it's not trendy anymore, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a barrel-aged cocktail on your menu. It's still a good idea. Some trend ideas deserve to die. Um, They weren't good ideas, so let them go. But other ones, like, you know, if you're using... I mean, I've talked to you about using uh, vinegar as an acid Mm -hmm. in cocktails, you know, and that's a good idea that should stay. You know, and it's just like, but... um, Things come and go, and I worry about how the fast things go these days. Yeah. I remember, well, the article about Vineyard Cocktails, mm-hmm. um, after that was published in the New York Times, I, I got boxes and boxes of vinegar from all kinds of importers, producers, um, distributors. Was I, any of it any good? Yeah, there's definitely some good stuff. But well, like, good, you're welcome then. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Fred. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I should share some with you because I probably have like 200 bottles of vinegar that got sent to me because of that article. So thank you. Um, <laughs> well, but, pass the savings on to the consumer. Yeah, I, but uh, what what made me th- like exactly what you were saying is like vinegar and cocktails. It, it's not the newest idea. I mean, no. we're, people were making shrubs, you know. 200 years ago. Well, that's another thing. Almost every idea that we're coming up with now 
was created like a century ago yeah. or even later you know i mean when 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 people uh like uh ooh and ah over the flaming of an an orange rind over a drink mm-hmm. which we've all done and uh, dale de Groff, the famous mixologist has taught us to do uh, i've read accounts of that happening in 1913 so i mean it's sure. it's we're just reviving all these great yeah. ideas that were lost and you know what like you were saying and it it does piss me off a little bit when people like just like steamroll over a trend like or a quote-unquote trend as it were um there are certain techniques like you said and certain ingredients that ingredients should not be trendy i mean like we're like you said if we're just bringing stuff back that was lost for a while and you have to respect that you know i and it took us this long to get it back and barely you know i mean yeah let's keep it you know let's exactly. not just uh, say oh well that was fun now we're going to forget about it again that was i mean right now one. we're yeah. all very hot on um sherry cocktails and that's fantastic sherry's a wonderful ingredient in cocktails absolutely everyone's enjoying it there's been a lot of articles but i hope it continues i hope people continue to be interested and not just get bored do you think it's do you think it is a, just a product of like like the modern reader consumer absolutely journalism in itself do you think it's a little bit of both i mean like i mean is it like both both trends everything like both readers and and journalism you know the attention the attention span is just too short yeah and the news cycle is too fast but uh perhaps i'm worrying too much it seems to me that you know uh, i mean you guys bartenders mixologists you kind of stick by your guns if you like something and you're going to keep doing it uh um, I, I doubt that Jeffrey Morgenthaler, the bartender out in Portland, who's mainly responsible for bringing us barrel-aged cocktails, is going to give up on them. He's just going to keep doing it. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't give a fuck about what anyone writes about. Like, if, if it's not trendy or, like, not a cool thing to do anymore, it's like, you know what? Barrel-aging a cocktail is, in my opinion, always going to be really cool. As long <laughs> as it's done right and it tastes well, yeah. that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about a lot of mixologists that take too long to make drinks. And you know what? It's kind of, in in my opinion, one of the biggest, like, fuck yous to that kind of statement. It's like, you know what? It took you... Yeah, it took I've, me I've been, seven weeks to make this cocktail. It took me you seven know? weeks. To, <laughs> exactly. And it was worth it. And it was totally worth it, you know? <laughs> um, I, I find, though, like, you know, with... As far as like trends go, one of the biggest things, and I talk about it a lot on the show and just around, but to me, one of the biggest trends that's happening right now is bartenders and bars getting more into customer service. Mm-hmm. There was it was for a very long time, uh, well, several years now. Um, it was more about what was in the glass rather than what was in the room, mm-hmm. you know. And I find that to be really, really refreshing. Yes. And yeah, no, I think we've turned that corner. I I think the 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 haughty, snobbish bartender is perhaps a thing of the past. I mean, it depends where you are in the nation, because like if you're in like a smaller city in the heartland that's just getting into the cocktail renaissance, they kind of have to go through those phases again. You know, only a few years later than New York or San Francisco or L.A. has done it. But, um, yeah, people have remembered uh, service. Um, I, I don't really blame the bartenders and the mixologists for acting, the, some of them, acting the way they did at the beginning, because they had discovered something very cool. They had rediscovered the art of bartending and that it was actually 
uh, a respectable profession. It was a profession of artistry, and they were proud, and they took it seriously. When and if someone comes into the bar and doesn't take that seriously, well, it might get your back up a little bit, and you might forget customer Absolutely. service a little bit. But So I give them that time period. Uh, I understand perhaps why it happened, but I'm glad now that we've remembered the customer. I mean, the customer has caught up a bit now. Absolutely. They understand. They understand, and they're into it, too, and they want to have the conversation. And even if they don't want to have the conversation, there's sort of a recognition that that guy behind the bar, he knows what he's doing, and he's doing something as special as the guy in the kitchen. Now, can I have my yeah. drink? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's it's really, I mean, I mean, you mentioned the bartender's taking their time to like get through the the hump with uh, the customers and you know it's a it's an educational job mm-hmm. being a mixologist bartender um it's something that you you work a lot on your craft you you study a lot uh through history mm-hmm. and through recipes and techniques but it takes people like yourself to enlighten you know the rest of the country, the rest of the world, through your national publications, to to educate the consumer of mm-hmm. what this is and how it's done, and just in the same way that like what what makes a good bartender also can make a good customer. You know, and to bring that together and also mm-hmm. to enlighten and educate people that's that's your job, and you've been doing a really great job of it, and I really appreciate it. I just want to say that. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's my pleasure. I, it's an enjoyable job. What do I have to do? I, I mean, yeah, got to tell you. Look at what we're doing today. We're just sitting in the studio. It's a sunny day in Brooklyn, and uh, we're having a beer. So, and just talking about the things we love. Exactly, exactly. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. It's been it's been a while. I've been trying to get you on for a while, but uh, I'm so glad we got to uh, have this conversation today, and I can't wait to have you on again. I, I, I'm glad it finally happened. Love to be on again. All right. All right. That's it for the Speakeasy this week. It's been Damon Bolte and Robert Simonson. Uh, until next week, cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>